seated. So this is the sixth week of our series, and we're going to look at the, the phrase, on the third day he rose from the dead. And before I get into it, I just want to say, once this video goes on Instagram, it goes on Facebook or whatever, and YouTube, um, share this. Someone's going to need to hear what we what said today, because uh, we're going to be looking at not just to see how the resurrection is not just a faith uh, issue, but there are actual proofs. There's actual evidence of the resurrection that we can look at that's valid, that's historically valid, that's intellectually valid. So uh, someone out there needs to hear what's going to be said today. So please share it, like it, whatever uh, thing you have. We don't have TikTok yet, but maybe we'll do that too. TikTok it. Uh, I sound like an old man now, but, you know, I try to keep up as best I can. Um, So I'm going to start out, tell a story. There's a man named Lee Strobel, and he was a well-known legal reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He won many awards, and his career led him to be skeptical, to be analytical, to find the evidence, to get two sources before he believed anything anybody told him. He's a legal reporter. And so as a young man in his 20s, that's what he did. He was newly married to his wife, Leslie. And after about a year or two, his wife comes home and informs him that she has become a Christian. And Les, um, Lee Strobel, the husband said, as an atheist, the first thing that popped into his mind was divorce. He said, this isn't going to work. He saw a future of working in soup kitchens and Bible studies and not getting drunk on the weekends like he was used to, and that sounds like a big buzzkill. I don't want to be uh, married to you, maybe not any longer. It was a big, big problem in their marriage. You can actually watch their story on Netflix on a movie called The Case for Christ. They made it into a movie. It's actually pretty good. And so he said, I made up my mind to go out and disprove what she believed. I wanted to save her from this cult that she now finds herself a part of. And so he went to go disprove, he said, the resurrection. Because he knew, even as an atheist, if you can disprove the resurrection, the whole house collapses. Nothing else will stand. Because he knew even then, that's the linchpin of the whole deal. Without the resurrection, it just doesn't work. Even Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ is not raised, then you are dead in your sins. So even Lee Strobel, as an atheist, knew that. So he went out to disprove it. He went out to find evidence against the resurrection to show that maybe they stole his body or maybe it was just legend. It was just made up at some point. People just wrote it. It's just men who wrote it 2,000 years ago. They could have just written it and just made up a story. It follows ancient tales of people that were resurrected from the dead. It was just maybe just based on Greek mythology, all these different theories. So he set out to disprove the resurrection. Well, long story short, after he went on that journey, he came to the undeniable conclusion based on the evidence that the resurrection actually happened and his life was transformed and he would eventually write the book called The Case for Christ. Maybe you've read it. It came out over 20 years ago and it's, uh, millions have been sold around the world and his life was transformed. And we're going to watch a quick video of Lee giving four proofs. Now he's a speaker and he lives in Texas and he uh, is a well-known author. He's written a lot of good books. Here's a two-minute video of Lee just giving you four um, proofs, as he calls it, for the resurrection. So check this out. I like to look at the evidence for the resurrection in four categories. The first one is, did Jesus die on the cross? Was he dead? Virtually every scholar on planet Earth concedes that Jesus was dead after crucifixion. We have no record of anyone anywhere ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. 
Uh, even the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, published a peer-reviewed scientific medical study of the evidence for the death of Jesus and said, clearly, the weight of the evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Even the atheist New Testament scholar, Gerd Ludemann, says, historically, it's indisputable that Jesus was dead. So Jesus was dead. The second category of evidence is the early accounts we have for the resurrection. In other words, I used to think as an atheist that the resurrection was a legend, and that took a long time to develop in the ancient world. But what I learned is that we have preserved for us a creed of the earliest Christian church, a creed that is a eyewitness-based report of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this creed has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death of Jesus within months. That is historical gold. So we've got a newsflash from ancient history on the resurrection. Third category of evidence is the empty tomb. And the best evidence for that is even the opponents of Jesus implicitly admitted the tomb was empty. Because when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now they're conceding the tomb's empty. They're just trying to explain how it got empty. So everybody's conceding the tomb was empty. How did it get empty is really the issue, and that goes to the fourth category of evidence, which is eyewitnesses. You know, for most of what we know about ancient history, it comes from one or maybe two sources of information. And yet, for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ. That is an avalanche of historical data. So you put all that together, and you have a really good case for Easter. Yeah, if you couldn't tell, he's from Chicago, so he's not from High Point. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I didn't know there was such a thing as an atheist New Testament scholar, but <laughs> there definitely is. So um, there's four words I'm going to be using that he uses in his book, The Case for Christ. But I'm going to be giving my own thoughts on those four words, but it's a great summary. And the words are early execution, empty, and eyewitnesses. And he touched on a few of those. Because it, and we're not here to discredit anyone that has a skepticism about the, resur the resurrection. In fact, we I would welcome it. Because uh, it's healthy to ask questions. Churches should encourage people to search and to seek and to ask questions and not to make people feel stupid for asking genuinely honest you know, questions that you would ask as a seeker. Because that's, we're all in a different place on the journey of faith. We're all you know, coming along closer to Christ in some way. So we want to encourage people to do that. So here are the four, those are the four words, and the first one I'll look at is early. So in that video, he talks about a creed. Now, he's not talking about the Apostles' Creed. He's talking about something else. In the book of 1 Corinthians, which we widely, widely believe to be the oldest or earliest Paul letter, um, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I received something that I merely passed along, colon, and then he quotes something. He quotes a creed, a statement of faith, of conviction, of shared value. And we'll look at it in a minute, but in that creed, it basically is where we get a lot of pieces of the Apostles' Creed, was on that creed that Paul quotes. He's saying, this is something I received earlier that I'm now relaying to you. Well, we can date 1 Corinthians to about the year 53 to 55 AD, roughly 20 to 22 years after Jesus died. So we know that whatever Paul had, he had it before 55 AD, that he merely received it from somebody else. Now, why does early matter? Well, obviously, if you're closer to the events that happened and the accounts, the eyewitness testimony, etc., then it's more credible. If it's earlier, it's better. 
in every possible way. So when you see a Bible, I, love, I saw a lot of you bringing in your Bibles today. That's great. I saw a lot of Bibles in hands. That's super. Um, when you hold a Bible in your hands, there's years and years of work go into these translations of the Bible. Uh, it's not just simply a facsimile. Scholars will work together, archaeologists, and, and there are fragments of Scripture all around the world in different libraries and places. And uh, if you ever say a fragment of the Gospel of John um, that says this, this verse of Scripture, then someone else, some other place in another part of the world will have a different fragment. They're all in these pieces of various types, and they compare them, and they say, well, how, do we know how old this fragment is? Was it, did it originate closer to the events described in this fragment? And so they're always cross-analyzing these things. Um, so the earlier tends to always get the weight. The, the earlier pieces found tend to go into your Bible. That's why something like the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1945 in a cave in Qumran was such a big deal because in that cave, uh, they found thousands of scrolls, thousands of manuscripts. And ironically, the shepherd uh, found them. He threw a rock into a cave and he heard it break something. And he walked in and saw all these jars full of manuscripts and animal skin and he made uh, sandals out of <laughs> some of the, the, the uh, manuscripts he found. But uh, in one of those caves, for example, they found a, an entire scroll of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, that was uh, 800 years older than anything we had previously. That's why it was such a big deal. And when you compared that scroll of Isaiah to what you have in your Bible, it was 99.9% the exact same as what you read in your English Bible. Isn't that amazing? that the rate of transcription, the, the credibility of that transcription is very reliable. And uh, so earlier always goes better. So when Paul was referring to something he received earlier. Now, a little bit of backstory on Paul. We all know that Paul, Saul, as he was known, uh, was a Pharisee. He was uh, blameless under the law. He was really perfect in the eyes of Jewish law. Very well educated, very smart. But he was also the, the, the archetype of a self-righteous religious bigot in that he was the one that held the coats as they stoned Stephen. He, he enjoyed it, finding Christians and killing them. And to the point where we know on the road to Damascus in modern-day Syria, he has a vision of Jesus that transforms him, and he is blinded for three days, and his life is never the same after that. He then sees that Jesus is real. It's not faith for Paul anymore. It's reality. And... Then he goes to Jerusalem, and we see in the book of Acts, he meets with the apostles. They talk to him. They lay hands on Paul. They anoint him as a new apostle to the Gentiles. That's me and you. And scholars believe in those meetings in Jerusalem, that is where he received that information, this creed in 1 Corinthians 15, a creed that, as he said, was in, written within months of Jesus' death, far too early a time period for something like legend or that type of thing to creep into the text, that they wrote it as they saw it, and it got passed on to us today. And here it is, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, colon, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. Paul's always a little bit modest. He appeared also to me. So here we have early, 
We have something received early. As he said, it's historical gold. The next word is execution. You can't have a resurrection without a death. And so we know that if Jesus did in fact die, he was not just resuscitated after death. You know, he in fact literally died. He was physically dead. And if you want to hear more about that, we covered that two weeks ago. Um, You can go back and watch it or listen to it. But as he said in the video, there's no evidence of anyone surviving a Roman execution. They were very good at killing people. It's sort of an inauspicious uh, you know, badge of honor, but that, that was, they were good at it, and you were definitely going to die if that's what they were gonna, going to do. So we know that Jesus wasn't, in fact, resuscitated, but that he died and was resurrected. You know, for example, like he said, we have nine sources inside, outside the Bible to, to corroborate the resurrection. Do you know how many sources would corroborate the life of Alexander the Great? Two. And do you know when the biography of Alexander the Great was written? 400 years after his death. Plutarch and Arian, two historians, wrote about Alexander the Great. Well, we blindly accept Alexander the Great's life. It was 400 years after his life. But with Jesus, we have nine, that many of which date back to within months of Jesus' death. So we know that he was executed. We knew that he died. But we also know that Jesus is alive. And that just as he lives, we will also live also. So that leads us to our third word, empty. If the tomb is empty, everything changes. Nothing should remain the same. We've heard of Christmas in July. How about some Easter in July? Does that sound good? I don't have an Easter in July sale. That's not a thing. But the empty tomb is the most powerful symbol the church has. It's the one that we should proclaim all the time, not just on Easter Sunday, not just once a year. It's it's the message we have that stands out from anything else in the whole world, that it is what stands out into every other world religion, actually. And to the early church, very beginning, of course, it had deep significance for them. Or today, we can make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and go to what they believe was that tomb. But the early church, they would gather at the tomb and uh, there's a thing called the Fos Hilarion, which is Latin for hilarious light or gladdening light or joyous light. And uh, someone would stand in the tomb with a lantern and they would recite this hymn. They didn't you know, have a praise team back then. Uh, they would you know, sing psalms or something. And they would walk, someone would walk out of the tomb holding this lantern. Isn't that beautiful? To describe the light of the world being born again and coming into our darkness. So the empty tomb, we know if it's empty... Everything changes. And as he said in the biblical text, the enemies of Jesus, they admitted it was empty. They, they implied it when they said this in Matthew 28. While they were going, the Jewish leaders, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say, his disciples came by night, stole him away while we were asleep. Okay, guys, he's not there. Here's a bunch of silver coins. Just hush, hush money. Let's make this go away. Let's make this disappear. But if they could, would have produced the body, they would have. If they could have found it, you know they would have produced the body. But they couldn't because he wasn't there. Lastly is eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians 15 passage affirms that Jesus appeared to over 515 people. The eyewitnesses, women, children, uh, men, of course, indoors, outdoors, uh, Jesus walking through walls, they, would, they ate with him, they touched him, they, they hang out with him. I mean, you have hundreds of eyewitnesses to this event. They were everywhere. 
Now, why are eyewitnesses so important? Well, we know that eyewitnesses are admissible in a court of law as evidence. If you have more than one eyewitness, that corroborates a story in many, many times. As we said, in ancient history, we're lucky to have one eyewitness. Here we have over 500 that are recorded. I've always said, because, well, well, when you have eyewitnesses, there are really no secrets. The truth is laid out in the open, right? When the eyewitness says, I was there, I saw it, I know it happened. And then you corroborate that story. When you don't have that, secrets get kept. I've always not trusted organizations that don't have windows in their buildings because they have something to hide. You're, 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 hit, you're hiding something. But with this story, with the resurrection story, with Jesus' resurrection, there's nothing being hidden. It's all out in the open. It's, like, it's even like the, the Bible itself. The Bible is not ashamed to show imperfection and people's frailties. It's like it's, it's all out in the open. Truth has nothing to defend. We're not, he's not the one on trial. So the fact that there were eyewitnesses shows that there was nothing to hide. If you look at other religions of the world, if you look at the, the divine revelations their founders claimed to have had, there were no witnesses. When Muhammad had his vision on Mount Hira of the angel Gabriel speaking to him and giving him revelation that would become the Torah, there were no witnesses to that. He just said he saw it. Or, with all due respect, but... Or when Joseph Smith had his vision of uh, the angel Moroni speaking to him in an apple orchard, and he got these golden plates and learned that Native Americans used to live, or, you know, I won't get into all that, but there were no witnesses to that. He just said it happened. But here with Christianity, there are hundreds of eyewitnesses. See, truth has nothing to hide. Truth has nothing to defend. Now, the world we live in wants to conceal this truth, I could be killed for talking about this in certain countries in the world. And it's not just an intolerance. I think it's a deeper spiritual darkness in our world that wants to cover up the resurrection, cover up the cross, cover up this, the scandal, if you will, of these messages and make them go away. But they'll never go away. And the disciples knew that. These original eyewitnesses, they were willing to die for what they saw. They were willing to give their lives for what they witnessed. Every single one of them. Not one of them backed down. Now, I could hear, uh, just to play advocate here, I could hear someone saying, well, modern-day terrorists, they die for what they believe in. Those guys that flew into the World Trade Center, they died for what they believe in. Who cares? People die for what they believe in all the time. But the difference is, the disciples weren't out to hurt people. They weren't out to give their blood to you know, receive virgins in heaven. They were doing it because well, they were simply following Jesus, and that's where he said it would lead them, was to that place of martyrdom. But they were doing it to spread the gospel around the world. They weren't out to hurt anybody. They had experienced and seen something. And really, every church stands as a testament to that day. Like, cause and effect, right? If the resurrection hadn't happened, would churches even exist? No, they wouldn't. We wouldn't gather to say, well, our guy that led a rebellion, did a lot of good stuff, but he's dead. Let's, let's celebrate that. Now, there's not a lot of energy behind that movement. We have to remember that no one would die for a lie. Chuck Colson was a lawyer for the uh, Nixon administration, and uh, he went to prison for two years for Watergate, which, by today's standards, that scandal sounds pretty tame, in my opinion, but... Anyway, it was bad. 
And he went to prison, and in prison, he has a conversion experience. He would go on to form a prison fellowship, one of the largest prison ministries in the world. And he came to the conclusion that the resurrection had happened, that it was a fact. And here's his pretty rock-solid logic behind that, based on Watergate. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men, the disciples, testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years. Never once denying it, their stories always added up. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12... Isn't it interesting there were 12 men that went to prison for Watergate? <laughs> embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Human nature wants to give in real quick when the, when the heat's on. Yeah, 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 he's dead. We're just make, making it up. We're just here to cause problems. No. No, they wouldn't die for a lie. And I've got one more E word that Lee Strobel doesn't use, but I decided to add it. And it's the word, eh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> eh. I just went through all that, and we could go through more how Jesus fulfilled 86 prophecies of the Old Testament perfectly. And just to fulfill eight is, is uh, numerically impossible, but he fulfilled 86. I could go into all of that. I could go into all that stuff about the resurrection I just said, and still people will hear all that and go, eh, eh. It's really what you call indifference. And I'll think about it later. When I go to church on Easter, maybe I'll, I'll talk about that. I'll think about it. But here's the thing about indifference. It's much more insidious than you think it is. Indifference is the very nature of sin, in my opinion. Because it, what it does is it elevates your opinion over God's truth. It elevates what I think over the facts. Indifference is a very sneaky way of leading you away from truth that can change your life. Indifference really says, I'm not going to surrender. I know better. Deep down, yeah, I know what's right and wrong, but I'm not going to deal with that right now. I want to feel apathetic. And I want to feel a little bit lazy. But what it is, is a chosen ignorance. It's a fortified pride of the spirit that says, in my opinion, I refuse to allow God's light to shine on my life, to change me. But if this is you, no judgment to you, but be warned. Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? What good is it? You gain nothing in the end. But if you get Christ, you get everything you possibly could have imagined and everything else thrown in on top of it. Too many people will say, I want to live life, live life how I want to live it. I don't want God to ruin my fun. I'll go to church on Easter maybe, and then I'll deal with it later. The people of Noah's day had the same attitude, and it led to their destruction. Indifference is dangerous. People will say, maybe on my deathbed. I'll do it later, then I'll pray. You know, just Friday, I went to the hospital to visit someone who's very sick. There's an older man, a wonderful member of this church, great Christian person. I'm no doubt he's in glory right now. And he was uh, sedated, so I couldn't speak with him, but I prayed for him, and I prayed for his family and everything. And then within 12 hours, he had, he had passed on. So you're going to wait? <laughs> this isn't a scare tactic. This is just life, okay? And the older people in the room know that. This is not. This is just reality. This is the nature in which we find ourselves. 
I was watching a testimony of a young man just this week on a video, and he was a high school football star. He went to go play football in college, and he screwed up his life because he started writing his own prescriptions to get drugs from pharmacies. And he got hooked on prescription drugs. And he eventually gets arrested um, by DEA agents and put in prison. And he, says, he said, I ruined my life. I ruined my chance to play football. I lost my scholarship. And he said, I always said, I'll just pray later. I'll deal with it later. This was his, his personal testimony. He gets out of prison. He gets back on drugs, starts drinking way too much. Gets in a car accident, cuts his car in half. Gets put in a coma, almost dies. And he finally he came to his senses. He said, that car accident happened so quick, I forgot to pray. Yeah, it does. It happens real fast. The Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. That today is the day to make peace with God. To be reconciled unto God. That the ultimate proof of the resurrection is your personal experience with it. That I can't make you believe anything. No one can make anyone believe anything. We only believe what we choose to believe and choose to engage with and trust in. Because this is the hope of the world, the resurrection. Amen? This is the hope of the world. And without it, we have no hope. This is really ultimately the only thing I really know. This is the one thing I know is that he lives. I know he lives. Our world and our culture is spiraling out of control. Do we need to come to the end of ourselves just to find out that without God, there's nothing? Do we need to wait and say, I forgot to pray? See, Jesus said, if you just have a mustard seed of faith, I can do a miracle in your life. If you just do just a little. But if you don't even have that, I can't do a whole lot. But if you just reach out to me just a little, I'll help you reach out to me. It's the prevenient grace of God. I will help you. But just a little bit. Even Jesus said in the town he grew up in, in Nazareth, he couldn't do a lot of miracles because they didn't have any faith. But Jesus said, just, just give me a little bit, just a glimmer, and I'll, I'll, I will meet you there. I will meet you there in that moment, and I will change your life. I will bring you as a new creation. I, I, will, I will move you from the grave you were bound to go in into the garden. I will take you from that, from that death and into life. Just give me a little. I'll meet you there in that, in that moment. See, this is the power of hope of the resurrection. Yeah, there's, there is evidence for it. There is logical, conclusive evidence for it. But then the question is, what do we do with that? I know there's many believers in the room. I know there's many people here who do. There might be a few who don't. And so I'm going to ask us to pray, to close our eyes. And you know that if you're here today and everything I've been talking about with the resurrection of Jesus has maybe pierced you in a way that you hadn't expected, in a way you've never felt before or thought about before, I want you to know that God is speaking to you right now. He's speaking to you to get your attention. He's saying to you, I love you. I forgive you. I welcome you into my arms. If that is you, would you just raise your hand and say, Clark, pr please, please pray for me. Please, please pray for me. I need your prayers today. I need God's help in my life. Thank you. God bless you. I need the power of God in my life. 
And maybe you're here today and you're a, you love the Lord. You've gone to church a long time. Maybe you feel a little bit like a prodigal son or daughter. Yeah, I've been backsliding a little bit. If that's you, just raise your hand. Just say, Clark, pray for me. Pray for me. Thank you. Just say to God, heal me. Bring me back to your heart. Bring me back, God, to intimacy with you in new and fresh ways. God, thank you that you forgive us in the ways that our love grows cold or we just get so busy. And we can forget to tune out your voice or we can tune out your voice. But God, we want your church to be a place where people meet with you, where we feel your touch, we feel your power, where we know we have this resurrection power living within us as temples of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, pour out your spirit on us again, a fresh pouring anointing. So we can't just say we believe this, but God, that we live it. And then, God, thank you that you know that we're weak. You know that we're just jars of clay to show this power is not from us, but it's from you, freely given as your grace upon us. Come in, Holy Spirit, in this place. Move in our hearts as we worship you this morning. In Christ's name.